keep going. Hello, welcome back to the Keep Going podcast. For some, a nearly two-hour conversation about the future of the sport of running between three relative bozos may just be a bridge too far. For others, this will really help reveal significant challenges and changes that we think could revolutionize the sport. Recent NCAA legislation has slowly filtered into the real world of collegiate distance running. The first athlete to sign a significant NIL, or name, image, and likeness contract, is Caitlin Tui of NC State in signing with Adidas, her shoes, shoe, her school's shoe and apparel sponsor. This past weekend, Tui won both the 5K and the 3K races at the NCAA Indoor Championship as she continues to cement her legacy. In this episode, recorded in the first weeks of December 2022, we provide a quick primer on the history of amateur versus professional arguments in the sport of distance running. In the 1970s, the legacies of Steve Prefontaine, Frank Shorter, and Bill Rogers transitioned the sport by ushering in a new era of professionalism. But the opportunity to make a living from the sport has always been thwarted by the NCAA, where every athlete has been an unpaid employee of the shoe companies, television networks, and athletic directors who truly own sports in America. This stuckness, as I term it, has traditionally limited athletes, especially distance runners, of opportunities to benefit from their success on the track. The new legislation, we argue, will be a huge opportunity for athletes to turn the tables. Listen in as we delve deeply into this topic and its role in social media, the attention economy, sponsorships, and how we can expect the sport to change. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But we are seeing seismic changes in the world of sponsorships and marketing, both positive and negative, and how it impacts us all. Now, somewhere along the way, we begin to focus on Atreyu and its marketing challenges. And the story of the Wasp. We delve into our favorite topics like steal the culture, narrative and story, style and soul, coming home. It's all there in this one, folks. So without further ado, I bring you to the episode that we call The Story of the Wasp. All right, guys, how we doing? Moderate to severe. <laughs> you got your PG tips, though, so things are about to change. We're both we're both PG tipping, but John, if, he, tipping. if John if John goes slow later on in this <laughs> conversation, just realize it's not Michael's fault. <laughs> I tried to get him caffeinated, but I, what's the deal the, with that, John? No caffeine for you? No, I I can drink caffeine. I've had coffee this morning. I just this morning I'm just off. And so if, if I get lost later, it's not because of a lack of caffeine. It's just because I, <laughs> I'm just off today, man, from the moment I woke up. And I did my exact, my, my mornings are almost identical to almost to the minute what for you- like the first hour. And this, even while I was going through all the stuff that I can do blindly, you know, feeding the animals, doing all this, you know, stuff. I, I was like, today's going to be a weird day. I just, I just felt, I don't what know. Is, is it a full that, moon tonight? 
It was last. That was a beautiful moon this morning. So I don't know if it's full or partial, but it is in. We're in that then that zone. Of course, mm-hmm. our astrologers out there would have to give us more information, which I think is the um, the coolest thing in the world that astrologers really have their shit down I, and they can nail things because I'm like, yep, the, can we just say we don't know what it is and the world is weird? But the world is weird. <laughs> Reality is weirder than we have any idea and the fact that anybody thinks it's that it's not weird, I don't know what what you're on, but that's John, a, John's day is weird. That's the great, <laughs> but I think it's a great way to just go through life. Just like, you know, it's kind of like sort of a bastardized, bastardized version of child's eyes where every, you're just like, Dude, this place is a trip and you just roll with it and it makes things so much easier. Huh. It's just that that way you don't get bogged down by, you know, people taking two lanes down Lamar, driving 17 miles an hour. There's probably four or five hours of conversation in this that's going through my head. I want to ask follow-up questions, but I do not want to, like, go too far off the grid. Oh, Michael. What Michael, are we talking Michael. about this week? We are... Talking about some, I think we're going to be talking about some L and I, some weird shit. <laughs> I, I, because yeah, reading the text thread, we had one idea, two ideas, back to the third. I, I, I we, we had, we had some good stuff, and it all. Steve, can you sum it up? Is yeah, it, I think I can. I can sum can, it up because John, John can. clarified some really important things for me. Um, so what we're talking about today is how. The sport of running in the United States is going to utterly and completely be transformed by recent legislation by the NCAA, which for our listener base, they may be saying, why is that pertinent to me? Why does that matter? Why does that have any interest? Because what we're seeing, if you're a fan of the sport, what you're seeing happening is about is going to have a pretty substantial change in five years, if not two years we'll see a landscape really, really differently from our elite athletes and how they produce and how they, they do, how they do things. But also it's happening um, in all other sports. If you have any NCAA interest or any pro interest, you're going to see changes at a, at a radical level. And then finally, I think the third level of importance where it hits everybody right where we all hurt, which is I think we're going to be talking a lot today about greed. We're going to be talking a lot about the foundational elements of what sport is about generally and our sport running is and how our commercial commercialization, look, maybe I should go even lower than that, get, get more base than that, how um, a capitalist economy creates a distortion of reality that we see we can really pinpoint in our sport and I think running will be a great place to pinpoint it, but that is um, deeply impacting everybody at every level. So even your marathoner who might be listening to us, who's training for a marathon, they need to know where they're at in relation to the capitalist economy. <laughs> and, it, and if they don't, wait, wait. this well, is a politics thing. Well, it's not though. What was our whole last conversation yeah. was discussing shoe industry right. and the shoe mm-hmm. world and all that. That's all sitting on this bed. And then we've got this competition and we're like, is he doping? Is he not doping? Do you right. know why they're doping? They're doping because we've got a, we've got a fucked up model. We've got a model that says, and the fact the model has been fucked up before capitalism. Well, that's not before capitalism existed. It, you even just look at it in the ancient Greek games. Why did, because there's attention economies everywhere. All economy is attention. And 
when somebody does really well at something, they get attention and then they're able to turn that into some kind of benefit to them. And um, that experience that is part of the context of a of a, an acquisitional model of worldview and economics. Um, and then you can talk about the political aspect, but that's just worldview and, right. and, and economy, which are, you know, things we don't really think of as political, but they, I mean, every, I mean, the, the idea of what is political anyway, to me is a very right. strange topic because every single, you could say nothing is political or everything is political and you'd be absolutely correct. Right. <laughs> so anyway, what we're talking about today is how the sport of running is going about to be impacted pretty drastically around um, young people having the ability to generate revenue while they're in college through different models and then how those models might play out and and how those models might how we'll see changes what was going on before what's going on later and then we'll probably just freelance off this in a lot of different areas that could be um, super weird because John's feeling weird today that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> so did you get up to speed, Michael, on, on, on the basics of, uh, of, of this, the idea of, what's it called, national? The, um, L-N-I, likeness, name, image. Image, likeness, name, image. And essentially, image. you know, athletes can get paid in college. Right. This is a new development. Right. And I heard about it first from my buddy Jake, um, and he talked about it through the, the lens of, college football right. and how that was that was that was kind of like panning out and he's he's my dose of like espn news a lot of the time yeah. and he i love i love hearing it from him and so i am familiar with it i think for the conversational context i mentioned that i'd come at this one as a student because as somebody who kind of represents like i, I like to think of myself as representing the bell curve of the I wouldn't say the average athlete or the average consumer, but I do often find myself to be a pretty right at the top of the interest and kind of understanding all of the, the zeitgeist of like sports, whether it be collegiate sports or right. pro sports, like I am an enthusiast of them and I come at it from that lens. So I, I like to enter into this conversation to kind of understand why it's important and understand and kind of make my own assumptions from it. So hopefully I can provide that in the dialogue. Yeah, well, I'm in a lot of ways a student too because Steve coached at the D1 level and had to deal like the and whole at the pro level and the pro level. Yeah, and at those levels where you, it's the business aspect comes into it, that's a whole nother thing. And I think my whole, I, I think watching collegiate sports running football, whatever the sport now is sort of closing in on professionalism. Like it was only in the seventies when the AAU was still, you know what I mean? So we're not that far removed from no, Steve Prefontaine basically broke the glass ceiling for right. all distance runners. And I think most of the, most of sport collegiate sports in general, because of his, um, rebelliousness and the low level interest in you know he didn't break it but he 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 really pushed against the edge of what it meant nike was part of that um blue ribbon sports yep. or nike however you want to call them um and that crucial piece of you're right so it's relatively recently that right. we've been in a place although again to the going back to the ancient greek games those guys were professionals i mean they weren't 
Right. They they weren't. Um, I know. I've, I've I've done reading, and they they were they were being sponsored and being taken care of, or they had cush jobs so they could um, get ready and prepare for those those Olympiads, those games, right. because they had special skills. Um, but it is interesting. So that's you know the kind of a piece of that is like the idea of amateurism is a really interesting idea because it didn't come around until you know, the 1890s with the idea of the Olympics. So right. there really was no such thing as professional or amateur prior to this um, colonial white dude, De Coubertin, who decided that he had this <laughs> right. fantastic idea to put on the revival of the Olympic Games in like 1896 or whenever it was. And um, right then and there, you know, basically changed in such a huge way, the way people thought, because, you know, from that day, well, from that point until the 1970s, um, it was the hot, it was the highest level of being a sportsman was about being a gentleman sportsman, um, right. which has all the connotations of gentlemen, right? All the colonial patriarchal right. connotations that we bring to gentlemen at these days is exactly the only people that could actually do it. Now there were people like Jim Thorpe, you know, there's a recent biography about Jim Thorpe, which is fantastic. I can't remember the name of it, but I read it. It was great. Actually audio booked it. It was amazing. But I do think that that's something to be talking about in this conversation to say, Hey, it, it, it's not historical from a lifelong thing. We've humans who, have skill sets in certain areas are always finding ways to benefit from their skill sets. Nobody's, but then in the 1890s, some people decided if you had this specific skill set that you were going to be an amateur. And then in the 1970s, they basically said, Hey, this is kind of crazy because we're not, we're not patriot. We're not going to go down the patriarchy route. And it wasn't phrased that way, but colonialism and patriarchy and all that other stuff is pattern of all that took a while to break out of that but eventually by the 80s our sport of track and field was fully professional by the time we get to 1980 yep. maybe not for women that was coming along but they weren't you know patty catalano and allison Rowe and those early right. women they were they were more amateur than bill rogers and you know philip Baye or other people but they were not but that was just because we still had a patriarchal society not because mm -hmm. they were precluded we just didn't they just didn't think it would sell and then by mid 80s it was off yeah. and women were making getting deals and having deals running is one of the sports that like the women and men really have a pretty comparable um opportunity economically it's like pretty unusual that way i have a question and i'm probably going to sound like an absolute dingus but What's the simplest way to designate between amateur and pro? Getting money. That's it. At the time, it was getting money, but there were all kinds of ways for amateurs to get money. They had, it had to be put in a trust, or they couldn't receive the cash. What, okay, so you could, you could basically, okay, you could, you could get, wow. So this, they, is, this is interesting to me yeah. because what was, so the, the designation was between getting paid versus not getting paid but what about the the landscape of um competition did it look or feel different from amateur to pro could like you race basically well, there was no pro <laughs> okay yeah so, so. The, the pros would get an appearance fee it was mm -hmm. all under the table money back then 
Yeah. So they'd get appearance fees and bonuses and things like that. But they weren't allowed to compete in the Olympic Games or the World Championships. The World right. Championships didn't come around until later, but the Olympic Games. So their biggest opportunity for revenue was controlled by their, by the, at the time it was the, um, it, the TAC, the Athletics Congress. Before Athletics that Congress. it was, you, uh, I forget what it was before that. But TAC, I forget. So the governing body has traded hands a few times. On it has it. changed names um, and there have been national ones and, and there's international governing body and now there's, and then each country has their own governing body. Um, and in that phase between the 70s and the 80s, we saw that shift occur. And at the time there were, you weren't going to be able to compete in the Olympics if you took money, um, but there wasn't a professional circuit like right. there is in, um, it wasn't a professional circuit of the same caliber because people were trying to retain their amateur status mm -hmm. so that they, they could compete the at the Olympics because it was the one place. That's Whereas NBA and, and, mm -hmm. the, and the NFL, there were no NBA, there wasn't, this is a really interesting test case to talk about what happened in the 90s right. when, when the basketball association the shifted team. over and they started to create the dream team, which, you know, before it was supposed to be amateur and then they could be pros. So we have some recent experience with all so of that. So there was some gray area as far as what sports and, and different, different aspects. Well, this is where running really led the way because there was no other alternative okay. to generate revenue. And all of a sudden there was a running boom and there were races that everybody was running and people were making money. But then if they made the money, they couldn't run at the Olympic at gotcha. the Olympic Games, yep. ostensibly. So, you know, in 1972, did Frank Shorter rev generate revenue and did he succeed from his gold medal in 1972? I guarantee you he did. And I guarantee you he, um, I guarantee you he was no longer a amateur at that time. But he, by the time we got to 1976, I don't know the exact timeline of this, mm -hmm. either had been loosened by the Athletics Congress and IAAF or it had been um, rescinded because you know, 1972 to 1976 is when we see in our sport just it go from um, you're a weirdo out on the road to every weirdo was out on the road. Mm -hmm. Like, and everybody yeah. was weird because they were out on the road. I mean, we, when you think about the numbers of people that were running um, road races, I mean, 20,000 people yeah. running a road race in the 70s like that. And before that, there were, if you had 200 people, yeah. 1969, you had 200 people at a starting line. That was a big race. Gotcha. I think Boston... Boston's, like he was 19, was reading about uh, Bill Rogers' win in 76, I think it was, or 75. 75. And he, um, I think they said there were 2,879 yeah. runners or something like that. Church 5Ks have that many people. I know. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate the context on that. Yeah. Like it just, it, for me, it was always difficult to like kind of understand the continuum of, of all the different aspects coming together. Because if you just look at it from a macro perspective on the Olympics, you can't get paid and go to the Olympics. That's like, to me, it was like, that's about the way to boil it down. But it's like, well, that's changed. And I'm sure there was a lot of, um, Nef maybe not nefarious, but you know, whatever kinds of transactions that were trusted and held for later. And you know, every, everything in sports is it's marketing. Yeah. It, it, you know, there's, there's a, I mean, to generate revenue in sport, you're either a marketer or you're winning and it's, or, or you're, which is, or you're competing. Mar which is itself a marketing. Right. Exactly. So, so it's all marketing. So it's, <laughs> every, a, it's, it's hard from a bit, from a business context. It is, 
it, it's it's hard to wrap wrap the brain around what is sport versus what is business. Well, so that's, that's where I come at it from. That's from the, my, I think still there's that blackout period during the Olympics where you can't mention your own private sponsors, right? You can mention the national sponsors, but I think pro athletes or the Olympic athletes still, you know, they can show a picture of the shoe that they wear, what that the company that gives them footwear, but they can't name it. That's so interesting. I don't know about that one way or another, but that, you know, the reason I think that maybe I don't know about that is because it's so frowned upon anyway in our right. sport. There's sort of this still, this amateur ideal that right. you're doing it for the right reasons, which I think kind of why I framed it the way I did when we started mm -hmm. is to say, we've got a problem in the way we operate in our consciousness as a, as a, as a in the whole world now, because we're a global, world, global economy in a global situation where we're operating with this mindset um, that is, um, you gotta win and, and we, but yet we espouse all these other supposed benefits from running and why we run and we do it for these other reasons and with these other things. Um, but let's be clear, um, absolutely at the collegiate level, the athlete is running for their institution right. and their institution is generating revenue from their performance. Now, distance runners don't a lot, but there is money somewhere. Right. Um, or there's the sign, the deal that that university has made with the shoe company, and then they want their athletes to win this NCAA championships and be seen in their gear. So there's that piece there. Like even if they don't, might not make, um, there might not be a ton of money in indoor track and field because there isn't. Mm -hmm. I think almost, I think the, in the, at the NCAA level, every sport loses money, even men's basketball. I think only football actually pays for what? everything. I think I think, the, I, I think the men's and the men's NCAA maybe yeah. somewhere around like maybe there, but football is the only sport that generates enough revenue to pay. It pays for everything else. Now, other institutions, you've got, you know, mo most public institutions that see some, you know, in at the University of Texas, where it's a it's a oil based economy, land based, so it's really just making money from oil. Um, and some of that money just go to the athletic department just through its natural channels. But, you know, it's Furman University, which is a private university, right. or Baylor University. They're not getting money from the state. So a lot of what they're doing is that money is coming from the institution itself and the deals that they make for those institutions. But the big question that's been going on for many, many years, and this happens in football especially, is that the universities are giving an education let's price an education these days. I mean, I know it's pretty substantially different, but let's say somewhere between $20,000 and $60,000 a year, right? Yeah. Depending so. on the schools yeah. that you go to. I would mm -hmm. think, I think that's pretty reasonable and fair yeah. to say that it's a range. University of Texas, I mean, maybe at ACC it's different, and but that's a community college. Right. But most of your D1, D2, and D3 schools are going to be between $20,000 and $60,000 to go to school there. Um, so those, those, in the past, what we've talked about is those collegiate athletes were being paid by a factor of four for the number of years that they were in the institution. And that's a pretty good payday for someone who's not supposed to be making money. But what's happened is the sport of football, um, those f players um, could very easily make more money in the pro ranks. And in basketball, we've seen um, the NBA, the National 
Basketball Association, the governing body, trying to regulate when an athlete could come into the national, into the pro league from the high from the college league and still retain their eligibility. And well, not, not that the NBA cared, but the NBA was trying to help the NCAA keep them in the NCAA sport right. because there was benefits for the NCAA basketball championship. Um, you know, who's the Kevin Durant is a great example. He's a one and done. Everybody was one and done, but they had to go one year and it was good for their marketing personally. Right. Um, and they didn't make any money that year, but they got an education. Um, what well, do you think Kevin Durant's worried about? And he might be worried about his education, but Kevin Durant was always going to be a basketball player. Right. I mean, the dude can't, I mean, what would you do if Kevin Durant was your janitor? What would you do if he was your fucking, if he was, uh, he was on a flight, he can't go into a plane. I mean, the, he, he, he's, the guy, he's going to be a pilot. I mean, he might be a pilot if he wants to be a pilot, but the dude's eight feet tall. <laughs> like, what else is he going to do? So, you know, the idea that, I mean, not that I don't think that he wants to get an education for his general edification and all these other things and they're beneficial, but do you think Kevin Durant's ever going to really need that degree? Probably no, not, no. No, he's not going to need that degree. So, but distance runners do. So they're stuck. And they've been stuck. And, uh, and football oh, players... That's a, that's a subtle nuance, I think. And the football players are stuck, even though they can make a lot more money, because they need the collegiate game. The way that the sport is played, you need to play on a team with 11 people on one side and 11 people on the other side. you got to show your skills. And very rarely do we see high school kids go from pro from high school football to pro football. There's just a learning curve that's essential and necessary. Basketball is a different game altogether. It's an individual sport, even though they do it as a team, and your body type and your size and everything else is, makes such a big difference. And in distance running, there's just no money, right. but distance runners would be more like basketball players, potentially. Right. So that's setting the frame for what we've been seeing at the collegiate level and how it works at the collegiate level. Does that make, is that clear? Yeah, generally makes, makes pretty pretty good sense so let's just say that i'm a high school high school kid um but, but let's use let's use a guy that i think most people will know in the united states so let's use galen rupp so he came through the college he came out of the high school system let's say in 08 no no probably oh two oh three oh four yeah ostensibly a pro because he had a professional coach Maybe he was paying for him, maybe he wasn't, but he was given opportunities to work with this stellar coach at the high school level because he showed preternatural talent. But it, that all happened just because his, his, the coach's sons were playing on the same soccer team that Galen was playing on, and he recognized them. He recognized him and said, this kid could be really, really good. And so he pulled him out of the soccer, off the soccer field and into running, and then, you know, he... But he didn't... He could have gone pro, but he didn't. He went for four years to the University of Oregon, graduated, and then went pro. And so distance runners, even though they're more basketball-like, don't need the collegiate system necessarily if they're super preternaturally talented. Right. Um, but they do need the exposure. They want the education. They want the money. You might not... How many people are making a million dollars as distance runners in the United States? No one. No one has a million dollars. I mean, maybe, you think anybody has a, in the United States has a million dollar contract? Not a... Five hundred, I knew, I know Leo in 04 or whenever he came out no, was I like 500,000 or 450,000 or something like that. I don't know, because there were lots of big contracts going around, it seemed like, for a while. And I think they're smaller. I think sprinters probably make a ton. Oh, they do, they do. Sprinters yeah. 
probably do really, really well. But as distance runners, I can't, I can't think of anybody right now who's going to make. I couldn't imagine it. Mm-mm. Like I, I just that's from my vantage. I just couldn't. I mean, if, I, so I can't imagine about that. If Galen were at his peak now, he might be, but I, I don't know. So well, so then we let's go back to that economic model I talked about. About four years at a college institution right. is twenty thousand to sixty thousand dollars. Multiply that by a factor of four, and now you're looking at what you would need to see on a consistent basis for people to even consider jumping out. But right. why the people jump out? Because good basketball players are making millions and millions of dollars to go pro, right? And that's just the contract with their with their um, with their team to say nothing of their footwear contract, which is different. So. Um, so the whole system is designed around this capitalistic model of right. how revenue is generated and how revenue can get made. But what's going on in football is that those football players also needed that system. And so they needed a place to develop their skills. And the institution was making many millions of dollars on them and their likeness and their image mm-hmm. um, in return for ostensibly at the highest level of $400,000 investment. Right. Okay. And um, so, you know, if you're at Harvard, you can get a full ride and that would be a $400,000 investment. And then that athlete would look at that and say, okay, well, I might have, there's only two people in the world that got a $400,000 contract. So maybe, but most of those deals for most distance runners coming out are, you know, $20,000 to a hundred thousand dollars. 90, 95% of the distance runners in the United States are making under $100,000 a year. I believe it. I would may, may even be higher, maybe even 98%. I'm not sure, but not many are. Um, so there's no economic reason for that. Whereas in football, there's a good economic reason. They need to stay in the sport because they got to develop. <laughs> right. So there's no market, there's no market forces in play to allow them to move out of the pro game. Um, so football pioneered this idea because basically African-American athletes were starting to talk about how the NCAA was another form of slavery. Yeah. I think those were the exact words that were being bandied about. And I don't think that any institution wants to be labeled with, um, that institution, that, 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 you know, I mean, America was the last in, last country that did away with that as a right as a nation state. <laughs> so you don't really want to be associated with right. slavery. So they knew they needed to figure something out. So what they came up with was this was this likeness um, clause, so that an athlete can get paid primarily because they were essentially the position was. The institution was just purely making money off of the athlete, correct? Correct. They were making millions off their likeness. So there was just an absolute, yeah, okay. Not off the kicker, right? So the kicker (laughs) um, wouldn't. And so, you know, ostensibly he's the guy why you don't, you know, you don't want to change the thing because, you don't. there's a hundred people on a football team. They all got full rides at at the D1 level. They're all on full rides, most of them. Um, And then the, but they're, but, but, you know, Vince Young in college is a different likeness yeah. than, um, I think he's, Tucker is still kicking. Isn't his name Tucker? He, oh, I think he cooked for, tech, he cooked for Texas. He's still, he's, still kick, he's still kicking in the pro game after around the same time. They came out around the same time, wow. generally. 
I mean, that's, but so, but we know that that likeness is valuable. And so the athletes were just saying, Hey, or agents or whoever it was, would just say, Hey, this is kind of ridiculous. Like they ought to be able to do something with it. And so they just got their heads around and said, we probably should need to do this and we need to change it. So it's changed this past week or last week or two weeks ago, we had the first track and field athlete, um, publicly denote that they are on a national on the likeness. What is it? L. L N I L N I likeness name image. So we have Caitlin Tui, who some of our listeners may know, but most people probably don't. She's the currently the top NCAA level distance runner in America from the 1500 all the way up to the 10,000. If she, whatever she chooses to race, she's going to yep. beat people or be right in the mix with them. She's super good. And she was really good as a high school athlete. She was, and she's the most Instagram followed athlete. I think in distance running or pretty really? close. Um, well, at least in, you know, what we would consider our little bivouac. So right. Adidas signed an NL, uh, this, this contract with her and that's her company. Um, and so that's why it's come to our consciousness. And John brought this topic up because he was like, Hey, Caitlin just signed this deal. And so tell us why you think this is going to change the sport. What do you think is going to happen? And what, when you think about it, what are you thinking? Are you thinking in a positive light with it? Or are you thinking in a negative light? Are you no, like I th- me I, where you're like, I'm ambivalent because it's going to be terrible and wonderful. Well, no, I, I'm just recognizing that it's like for a long time, I'll, I'll back up and, but I'll try to be as brief as possible. Like I've lost a lot of interest in sport in general. I still have my sports that I love, but I've lost a lot of interest in the sports, I think, because now when I watch them, I see less of the games that I played when I was a kid and more of, I don't know what I'm saying. It just seems less like I'm watching games. I feel less of a connection. I like, when I was a kid, I was, I think I was like six or seven years old. I was like, I'm going to be the next OJ Simpson. Absolutely. And you can take that however you want. But I was, I was obsessed with him because I saw a picture of him and I was like, I'm going to be the next OJ Simpson. And I, so I like, whenever I watched any pro sport, I like, I, I can see myself doing that because we did that in the street for an hour yesterday. And then later when I was running, when I picked up running, it was the same thing. Like mm-hmm. I ran in the same 10 K that Bill Rogers ran it today. And it was badass. Mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't beat him, but uh, I'm gonna, that's awesome. You know, I love that feeling. And then at some point I just like, I'm like, what? I don't even know what I'm watching now when I watch running and cycling and I still, I'm starting to feel the same way about soccer. And I've always loved it. But now with this whole World Cup debacle, I'm just like, fucking guys. But I I, I tend to think this is going to be positive because I've all, I've, for a long time, I felt like the athletes were always getting, like, this is going to sound like a little petty and whiny, but the athletes are doing the work. Like, they're the people who are do, rehearsing for the big show all the time. Now they have people directing them and people keeping them healthy and all that stuff. But all those people who keep them healthy and direct them get a paycheck and the athletes never did. And you, you know, it's true. They get a hundred thousand dollars worth of compensation or 400 if you go to whatever, but it's still like, 
I, I kind of got to the point where I was like, show me the money. And I can, I, and that sounds weird because I was never an athlete even close to your level, Steve. I never coached at the collegiate level. So I don't have all the nuances that can affect a decision or an opinion or whatever about that. But like, I, if, if she gets, you know, and I don't know how they do it. Maybe they give her five grand every time she posts something on Instagram. I don't know how it works, but it just think, even if she got a thousand dollars and she posted once a week, there's $52,000. I would take $52,000 as a collegiate person for sure. I bet it's more than a thousand dollars per, um, specifically if she has the most number of followers, because that's, that's what it's all based well, on. And that's right? what they're going to try. That's what they're trying to do is they're trying to preclude that per post situation. Hmm. So that's, so there are two models, um, in the pro world, just for people who are looking at it. Um, and well, there's one model, but this, this new, wrinkle was going to create a new model so the one model has always been you when you when you came out you signed with a company right. and they paid you x a number of dollars to do what you did if you were a lower level athlete they might not have written you a check but they gave you gear right so there was a contract that got written up but it was a contract for a year or two year or however long almost every distance runner's contract is a year long sometimes they'll do multiple ones just to keep things in flow and not have to go through that whole process but typically they're year to year and so what this likeness thing was going to do an image thing was going to do was then make it be like, oh, could you pay them per post or per whatever? And um, they make they can't do that, but that's not real advantageous for Adidas. Adidas is better able, better better set to keep the model at fifty thousand dollars and save two thousand dollars instead of the fifty two posts. Gotcha. And then then they got to lean in on the athlete to get them to do the things that they need to do. I don't. We don't know what Caitlin what Tui's contract looks like or what that says. We're not looking at that stuff now. I don't, maybe it's out there and I don't know, but um, my guess is that's what the marketing companies are doing. That's what the shoe companies are doing. Yep. And just so we are also clear in the sport of distance running, the money comes from 100% of the money comes from in the United States um, and in the world, um, unless you're Japanese, right? But right. 100% of the money comes from the shoe company. Right. You might get small stipendal benefits from your national organization like USATF mm -hmm. or from the Kenyan athletics. If you win an Olympic gold medal, maybe they'll give you a little kick or whatever else. But almost all the money is coming from your shoe company. And shoe right. companies do two different ways or both. They'll do um, most of them are on some kind of stipend and a yearly or, you know, a yearly salary. And then they get bonused really highly for their performances at key and critical races. Right. So when we're looking at these likeness stuff, we're looking at a completely different model, really. We're looking not at a performance model. We're looking at a and I'll, I'll att even, attention model, right. really. Get, I'll even add a attention. layer onto this. And, and this is something that has changed recently. Um, my company is a direct-to-consumer company. Whereas other brands are the brand. They, they provide um, some uh, real estate on the wall. Right. So prior to 
the way this conversation to me is is really really large and and come coming from the vantage of of the shoe company as well and the athlete because nowadays when everything has been purchased like on the internet and you can pretty much go direct you can go to your favorite place take a look at it go buy it online go buy it from amazon go do whatever you want like there's more of and how am i going to tie this up so from what I gather, the classic way to endorse or sponsor an athlete was for that. And the expectation was that athlete would provide a halo effect. So when somebody went into your shoe store, they had an idea that this athlete wears that, that sh- the, the, the salesman wants to sell me this, this shoe. And I asked him about that shoe because my favorite athlete's in it. And that's that's the point nowadays, um, because the 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 consumer and the athlete, how the athlete consumes products is fundamentally different than relying on a salesperson. I started my business with a Google search. I didn't start it any other way, and and so people can have access to a virtual guide whenever they want it. So it's different now. The athlete, it's been very tough for me to understand the role of athletic marketing um, because because most of the efforts for brands like mine that primarily up until next year, um, because that'll change a little bit because we're not going to be 100% direct to consumer next year and uh, or 98 point or 99.5% because we're in ready to run and, and Southern Bicycle in Louisiana. But like, uh, that'll change and it's an important it's important for me to articulate this because my if if I want my brand to succeed I'm going to need to get it in front of people or I'm going to have to come in through another door and get the people who already love the brand to go tell their friends that's just and both of them take money <laughs> And, and so when, when I'm, I'm trying to look at it from what is the role of the athlete and how are they going to not just, how is that halo effect going to bring them to cut through the noise and bring them into my domain? It's very confusing as you can imagine. It's, it's, it's just a different, I think that brands are starting to look at athletes a little bit different. Well, because it's not a halo effect anymore. Exactly. It's an attention effect because the fundamental nature of the sport, though, like, what did we, what, we started this conversation, I think off mic as we walked in the door, mm-hmm. everything is marketing, right? Yes. So everything, we, were off, yeah. we were off, we were talking about a different topic and it came in from a different doorway, but that's where we started. And that, and that is the fact of the matter. Mm-hmm. And now that the, that, that people have, and the halo effect is an attentional effect, but it's it's as you call as a halo it's more diffuse it's uh, across a wide domain it's within the context of multiple companies it, there's in a not shoe a direct store. relationship between what the the brands or the or something might want these days and there the, you can draw more of a point a to point b line well now it's social media Yes, so everything everything social media, and that really and bothers that's a, that's, me. Like, that's the attention economy, and you can't operate. The halo effect doesn't really work, although it still works. And so attention I'm, spans are very small. 
So well, we've been, we were, they're always been small. I don't think we're any smaller, but I just think that we don't know. We're, we're in the early days of, this is my theory of social media. We're in the early days. Social media is a huge tool and a very positive and powerful tool, but we, but it's currently as all new tools get used, once you get a hammer, you look at it and you use it to put in a nail and you use it to take out a nail. Um, but early on in the hammer's existence, it was also a weapon far more than it is used now. Now it's not used very often. But right now, when any new technology comes in, it gets used as a hand, uh, for all things. So right. I think that eventually we're going to see nuance with, with, with this because attention will be limited. And we see the attention is limited now, but they're scrolling and you're operating it in a different way. So this goes into neurobiology and other things. But I don't – I think of the human, human – I mean, I, 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 I looked at a magazine – running magazine, okay? I saw an ad. I didn't look at it. I moved on to the next page that had the information I really wanted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is the same. It's not that that's what's happening on social media. You just have to find a way to get their attention. Yeah. The best way now what they can do is they can actually get the person that you wanted that number, that name I wanted to see in the results. That it's not a shoe ad. It's a Caitlin Tui ad. And I can connected to Caitlin Tui. So marketing has subst substantively changed, but then that requires this, these personalities. And then, then they're going to get built out of that. So for a shoe company like Atreyu, your current marketing is mostly your people. Yeah. And your shoes. Yeah. So the people that are local, that are, you are around, um, at least I, I, you're one of the few shoe companies I follow that way, but um, you're, you're not, they're not, they're not, they're not, um, the, you're not looking, you're not going to the NCAA championships and trying to determine who's there. You're not going to agents and talking to agents and saying, Hey, we're a really small shoe company. We're a micro company. I've got X number of dollars to push some way. What kind of athlete do you think I can get? Right. And that might've happened 10, 15 years ago, but now it, it, it's really, really difficult. And that's not the path you want to go down, or maybe it is the path you want to go down. But my view about this is that this new contract, the way that these young athletes are going to be able to do this is going to now place a small company like you in a better position, not a worse one. You just have to learn how to use it, mm -hmm. right? And um, now they're allowed to wear whatever they want to wear, but they will still need to wear Nike if they're a Nike school or Adidas if they're at Adidas school. Mm -hmm. This is explicit. That's why Adidas really went after at Caitlin sure. because their school is an Adidas school. And they're all now wondering what will happen when um, Adidas goes after a Nike athlete. Right. And they're going to throw more money at that because they want to create this conflict to create more attention sure. to see what will happen. Think about how Nike is going to decide. Nike's just going to go, all of you with us <laughs> who's oh, coming with me who's and now i'm gonna be in the back going just, like all right <laughs> nike's marketing budget is larger than most shoe companies in toto mm -hmm. so it's like <laughs> and they have been known they have they are they have a line item so i'm coming at it from a very i mean it's it it's yeah, I need to see it from a different lens if I'm going to understand the full conversation because because what we're talking about is the 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 amount of dollars, marketing dollars that can and will go into running now, not just the lack thereof on my part. So the question is bigger. There's an industry, there's a market, and now it gets to go to to athletes. Yeah. And yeah, I think and awesome. I think and yeah. we see that as good. Now the that the, the, let me let me 
do the dark side of it is that now you've got kids who were focused on their education and were focused on that paper that they needed to write who are going to be compelled to spend even more time on their social media right. to yeah, try yeah. to get that kind of it would be and it those market forces are in play now and they were they were ex they were not in it the people that wanted to do that wanted to do it just because it's cool at that age to have people follow you but now there's going to be a real reason to do it and you're going to see more and more companies out there young you're going to see coaches you're going to see agents you're going to see influencers whatever though fucking influencer is doing these things where they're going to get to high school kids and they're going to say to them, Hey, you need, you're starting at eighth grade. You need your, um, this many Instagram posts. You need to be thinking about these particular keywords. You need to put these kinds of things in. And then, then, then social media will, will see a number of, you know, 10, 15 years of really sickness. And then it'll come out the other end. I think, I think all things pretty much come out the other end, but I do think in the meantime, it's going to be a really rough, it's going to be opportunity, but it's also going to be a dark side, which is that that is they're not there's not any as at all capitalistic things. It's the Wild West. It's always frontier. And those frontiers are dangerous places. And they're especially dangerous places for people who don't have big guns. Well, I <laughs> and I think that there when it seems from my from it, it just seems like the playing field is is real. It's just really interesting. I mean, when you're in the yeah. hands of a college institution and the primary goal is to, I, I would assume that it's to educate. I really don't have an opinion on that right now because it seems a lot of different things. So like college is to educate, I, I suppose, right? But it's yeah. not. Higher learning. But it's um, not. But it's like, but let's, let's, it's not, and it hasn't been for a long time. Well, okay? I, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't, it doesn't I feel. Gradu- I graduated from high school in 1988 and my dad told me when I was in high school in 1984, he said, study hard, run fast, join the military. I'm not paying for your school. Okay. So I knew that if I wanted to go get an education, um, which, as you know, even in 1984, it's even more so now. That means I do want to get an education. Of course, I want to get an education because that's now we've got a little more. There's a new, new economies. There's a value in your other are, are more labor intensive non like to be an electrician. Now you can make a whole lot of money. You can make more money as an electrician than you can as a college professor or a teacher. So why would you necessarily pay all that money to go to college? If you right. like this and yeah. you have a skill set at that people are getting that and people are, you're probably raising your kids with this idea in mind. Yep. You don't have to go to college. Yep. It's just one of the options that's available to you in 1984. It was the only path yeah. forward. So then I wanted to go, but I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to study. I like to read. I didn't want to college. But I went to college. Why? I wanted to be an Olympian. The pathway was through collegiate athletics. Right. I wanted to be an NCAA champion and I wanted That's to be an so Olympian. so interesting. And so that was the why I went through that pathway. So if I was doing that in 1988, yeah. what, well, not, that's still going on. It's going on everywhere, all over. There might be those people out there who want that. But who wants to be a college graduate and who wants to be an elite athlete? Like You're saying, you're, so your vantage, if I'm understanding correctly, is there are two different buckets and let's fill each of them to the highest capacity. And, and we're not going to... Ch- or let people have the choice to choose on those. Yes, but that this gets into a much larger conversation, which I thought might be the conversation John wanted to have early on, which is how would we reform this or how would mm-hmm. we change this? And John really wasn't. He was like, hey, there, I, this, I think it was so beautiful because I think we can go down that road and have that conversation in a future discussion. But I think there's a lot more to pull apart here at, as this experience of, of what we could... Because... John's bringing to our attention something that we can call out now in November, was November, now it's December, but when this happened in November, when it was announced, 
Like there is going to be, I think in five years, as I predicted, it's going to be a watershed moment. And John saw it and said, hey, this is huge. I know it. I knew it was huge too. Yeah. But it's a wonderful thing for us to talk about in this podcast because we're talking about all kinds of crazy shit and we don't mm-hmm. have to follow a particular thread. We can come back to this in five weeks. Or we can come back to this in five years one way. But there is one place I do want to – because I'm not coaching collegiate athletes. I'm not coaching pro athletes. John's not coaching collegiate athletes. He's not coaching pro athletes. The one person at this table who's most impacted by this is the person who actually has a marketing budget of some sort, or is trying to figure out what to do with his marketing budget. And that's Michael. And so I'm really interested in going down the direction of saying, how do, what if we were 49 minutes into this, in this episode, what if we twisted here for the next 10, 15 minutes and said, what would John and Steve with their particular insights? I, my insight as a, as a running coach at the collegiate level, a running coach at the pro level, our, shoe store owner for extended window of time um, uh, and and working tightly closely with a major marketing brand Adidas for how I could help them in how I how we could be working together to benefit the athlete and to benefit the shoe company right, right. John you came at it at Skechers where you were a part of marketing endeavors because you brought Meb to Rogue for an event not you didn't personally but you were part of that process right. that structure at a shoe company so what can what advice can we get? First of all, what does Michael want help with? But if what I will say is first is if I said to you, if I were, I would say to you, John, what advice do you have for Michael, knowing what you know from the side you know it, um, about how he might think about marketing? And I think for our listener, they'll be able to say, "Hey, I'm looking at this landscape, and it's 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 about to change." It's been changing. Most people know that, but it's about to change. Yep. And and Michael is, they can watch it happen through Michael. Not that he's necessarily going to take our advice, but he's obviously yeah, thinking a blank about slate. it. But he's obviously thinking yeah. about it. He's trying to figure out, am I wrong for not getting a collegiate athlete? Am I wrong for not going in that direction? Yeah. I'm not going that direction. It's about preservation like, of the sport. And there's there's this idea that, you know, every every brand has values, ethics, and beliefs about their sport or what they're doing or their business or their their market. And so for me, it kind of all ties into, yeah, I am I am looking for advice. I am looking for for some context on how I can understand it from a business cash flow perspective all day long, but I'm also looking at it from 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 the lens of, you know what? It not everything is cash flow. You know, and and not, you don't like, I'm actually getting away from that and trying to put more soul back into the brand because I believe that we lost it in the past year, um, for various reasons, maybe year and a half, two years. Like it, maybe, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we're, we've always been trying to find it because we're only about three years old, but I do think that we've lost this, this idea where we're connected and I'm trying to connect to the athlete the runner and at the same time do that in a way that's both dignified and has values and beliefs about the whole thing. So anyway, I I am open to it. It's a very tough problem for me to solve. One of the things I always think, and I think about this with every footwear brand is what, not so much about the product itself because everybody makes really good product, right? Um, Reference last week's episode. We right. were just gushing about it. Right. Yeah. It's all great. Um, 
I always like how the product is presented is something I've always, since I picked up the first Runner's World magazine back when the ads were all in black and white. Mm-hmm. Like how the brand is presented. Or, or how, not the, how the brand is, but how the product is presented. The brand and the product at some point can become the same thing, but you're, again, you're talking Coca-Cola, Nike levels and stuff like that. And the, it was always so affected. And particularly, I think about the, the first ASICs ads I can remember where these models are jogging, you know, they're like, you know, mm-hmm. and people, and it was like, and who, who put that out? There's nothing that makes me in want to go visit this location. There's nothing that makes me want to try that product. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, and now with Instagram and tick and every, how personal is that? Right. And so the marketing has to become visually personal too. I think mm-hmm. they, cause there has to be a congruency mm-hmm. or a parallel rather. And like, I always think of ads, like if I were doing ads now, they would all be kind of candid, but some of them would have some humor and things like, you know, maybe, but there, there, it would always have a candid element to it. Um, so that it felt personal. Cause I, and candid is about as personal as it gets cause you're not aware of what's going on. Right. And I always think of like, The big, okay, so at the top of the bell curve, right? Nobody knows who Elliot Kipchoge is and all that kind of stuff, right? Nobody knows who Hassan is. No, you know, they just don't know. It's cool. You, you can use the product that those people use, but you make it candid with the person who's living at the top of the bell curve or whatever. You know what I mean? You can add levity, you, it can be serious, it can be about running fast, it can be about community or whatever, but the candid thing is where it's at now. And I'm picking that stuff up from having a teenager in the house, you know? And those are the people in 10 years who are gonna start spending money. But for the community that we live in who buy running shoes, the candid thing is still, it's, or the personal, not the candidate, the personal thing, I think is the drug. I think that's the drug. And that's what you were talking about where you wanted to be, you know, you wanted to find your soul. Soul is very personal. So why not just put it there? You don't have to like open it up flayed, but I think that's where it's gonna go. And think about like high school influencers who put a picture of themselves with a necklace that somebody made are making $5,000 a pop. And the other little friends of theirs are like, that's my friend. You know what I mean? So why not, ex- the, yeah. why not extrapolate that for the running community? And like, oh, that that's person, what we're trying to figure out. Is that what person does that lives look in a different like? town. But if I were in their town, I'd be running with them. So you know how does I mean? that look specifically for the 
collegiate distance runner be, without just reducing them to mm-hmm. influencer status right. while building up the sport if you want to be authentic. All of these kind of equals this like really interesting equation, which is the market wants simple serve, yep. you know, this, that, grab their attention in the first second, don't make it too long, end it to where they want to watch it again. Yep get 40 to 100,000 views and some engagement. Use that engagement to then funnel into a retargeting ad, which is going to your site. And it's like, how do you, how does the brand, how does a brand like Atreyu that, like the best I've got is to show what I'm doing and to show my team and to show like pictures that are, you know, what I think fits that bill. But how do you, how do you interface with the athlete like that and, and, and ask them to step out of performance and into something else if that's not what their acumen is? So it's, it's very without without having a profile where I can go yeah. like, you know, all these athletes, they're going to be comfortable with kind of like um, taking a picture that's kind of, you know, with like Tim and Eric style in a funny, funny Christmas sweater because we yeah. need a funny Christmas post yeah. because we need a funny Christmas post. Yeah. Who's going to do it? The person that's on the, the endorsement list or not? Like, how does this, how does this work? So anyway, well, I, I think from one perspective, okay, so I'll, I'm going to come at two perspectives. The first perspective is that as a collegiate co- former collegiate coach. And if I were a collegiate coach, I'd be, peeing down the side of my leg right now trying to figure out how I'm going to manage <laughs> my athletes because they're all going to be thinking about this likeness uh, money that they can yeah, make. Yeah, from the coach's standpoint, that's so, really interesting. So that's scary, but I also know that's just an evolution of the sport and we'll have to see where it goes and humans are humans and this needed to happen anyway. And right. I do think that those athletes were slaves, personally. I think the football players were slaves. I think the elite at the runners are slaves. I think they need to reformulate and reformat the entire model. And maybe if they reformat and reformulate the model, then they won't, those coaches won't have the problem, but they never had any compelling reason to do so. Now they might. Okay. So to me, I see it and say, okay, it's just a landscape issue. It's a landscape question. How do I help my athletes do the best they possibly can from a collegiate perspective? And let's say that you came to me and I was a collegiate coach and I was running with you because we're buddies and you're like, hey, I'd like to get Johnny mm-hmm. in some Atreyu shoes. I'd say, you need to talk to an agent. I love you, but I'm not doing it. Johnny's got an agent. Mm-hmm. So, and if Johnny can't afford an agent, then you probably don't need them in your space. Oh, so you you believe that... So that's a way that's kind of like a fail safe to separate the sport and the business is through an agent because they're going to have to have them because otherwise they're going to get screwed. Yeah. So, um, and eventually if you're not big enough, then you don't. And you know, that let the agents work that out with the shoe companies and they'll figure that out. So sure. as a distance coach, I'm just like, no, I'm just going to pass it off. But as a pro coach, okay. When I worked with Adidas, I never understood. We were, we had some good athletes, but we were not given enough money from a budget perspective to get the big, to get the big signee coming out of college. Um, uh, let's just say the last year I was a pro coach, second to last, last year I was a pro coach. Um, I had coached uh, the, I was let go at UT because they just had a sea change. They just had a change of leadership. Um, and the athlete that I was working with at that time, the next year under the new coach won an NCAA championship. And um, I had a pro team 
but she would never have because she won the NCAA championship. She never would have considered. Now, whether she would have considered working with me anyway, you know, there's a lot of baggage there that happens with coaches and athletes. She never would have considered our team. She was too good an athlete to be on the lower because she could get more money from Nike or whoever else that she would have gone with. So from that perspective, and you're looking at, if I look at it as a, as a, as a person who lived in that world and was trying to get the money from Adidas, I never understood how it benefited Adidas in any way, shape or form to be. Um, we were influencers in the Austin running community and there were many years because we had rogue, we had lots of people in those Adidas years who were wearing lots of Adidas shoes lots of Adidas and we shoes. sold a lot more That's Adidas still, shoes on the floor. I think that still carried true for a very so long So this is time. a really good data set though. Let me just tell you this little piece. When we went to renegotiate our contract right at the end of our tenure with them, with Adidas, um, we brought to them all that data about how Adidas went from 10th on our wall to second on our wall for, and that was a big jump in they were uninterested. Now they, I don't know if that's just a negotiating tactic, but they told us that didn't matter at all mattered was the athletes performances. So it could very well have been, they just decided to keep the negotiation in the corner where they could. But when we brought it to them, they just immediately were like, well, that's nice and fine and good, but that's not really what it's about. So what I would tell you is, so then it made even less sense because my athletes weren't getting the results. So you know, the, if my athletes were getting the results, which is the thing that they were valuing the most, and I was getting up on the shoe floor, getting all these people to buy the shoes, which we would think was the ostensible reason for having them there is to sell more product. It's really not. You want to get the big, big, the big performance that will create lots and lots and lots of more shoes. Right. So what I'm saying about all that, so my perspective with that to Atreyu you is what Adidas could have benefited from our brand with was to tell a fucking story. Everything, humans are narrative. We just became humans sitting around a fire, shooting the shit. And we're narrative, and we're patterned narratively, and we operate from a narrative perspective. If there's one true thing for sure, it's, it's a story. Everything's a story. And the more we know about reality now, that reality may not be what we see, may not be real, but we do know the stories we tell each other create all kinds of things. Think about religion. Right. <laughs> okay. Never met Jesus, but I spent 25 years of my life <laughs> following that dude everywhere I could around him. So you know what? That reality is a really weird and slippery thing. <laughs> so I think that what I would say, but that story of Jesus resonated at a deep, 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 deep right. level. Moved me, moved millions of people. So what I say to Atreyu's marketing team is... What story are you telling? And then find the people that are telling similar stories. And look outside your circle. Look outside the small circle of current users and start looking for people that match that. And you want to stay in the running of communities, obviously. But like... For example, we were just talking about you wanting to do some run clubs in different parts of the city, different parts of the country. Wouldn't it be way more money, way more cost-effective to spend tickets buying to those flying there, having people sign a little waiver and taking pictures of them out doing what they're doing, just loving what they're doing? And you get better and better at taking photographs. So you can get that sort of right. personal element that John's been talking about, that personal aspect, the sweat coming down their face, whatever your fucking style is, right? Whatever right. your style is. But the style is not the story. The story comes from the DNA. Adidas didn't know how to tell our story. 
Y'all had a good story. It's a really good story. Yeah, and I they think never I th- told that, that, that story. That story, if you look at it as we didn't as a club to- versus just a single athlete, that story to me inspired me to get into what I'm doing. Like yeah. that's that's impressive. So, yeah, so and, and like, but and, you have to look at it from the whole. And we didn't I mean, know how to do that. We really yeah. didn't know how to do that. But I'm telling you, you can now because you know what what John said. What makes people tick is they want to see their people. They want the personal element that that fits. I call that the style. Right. Okay. What I'm saying at a deeper style is important, but at a deeper level, those things change. Yeah. The story. The, the store, the need for story never changes. And if you tell that story effectively, now are there, let me give you an example. There's a dude, there's two little kids that run in my club on my team at Telos. Their dad pays for them to oh. run with us. And one of Fabulous. them, is, one of them, his name's, they're the Espinosa brothers. One of them's name's Jeff and he's it's freshman this year. Yeah. I would tell that kid's story. Oh, I, I just, I can't say enough about Jeff. I would just tell his story. I'd say, we're going to do a series of four posts on this kid. We're just going to follow him around. We're going to go to different places. But Jeff's story is just a story of the kind of people you want in your shoes. And if Jeff's story isn't the story of the exact person you want in your shoe, will it pull on the heartstrings mm-hmm. of other people right. who want to see that? Where's, do you have 90-year-old users in your community? Tell their fucking story. Do you? That's I don't why I want to tell. Let me, you, let me give you a little critique yeah. right now. I don't want to see Lena. That's your fiance and the and mostly your marketing person, the person that you're taking photos of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love seeing her. She's wonderful. She's one. I love her as a human being. I want to know her story. Tell the stories and tell them in small little packets, or tell them over an extended window of time, or figure it out, or just play with all that. That's what I would say. Tell the story. The people are already there. The style is already there. But if you find the stories, then you'll find the people that match that style thing and the personality and that other piece. And then you've got something you're working with. You're cooking with grease because you're, you're hitting people right where they're at. Everybody loves a story. Yep. And if you look at the historical elements, go through myth. I mean, hell, there's, the, there's an entire film school, a whole program at UCLA about the five or seven stories lines that are told in any movie in the world. And there's only seven of them. So get better at, get better at studying what stories are and how, to, how people tell stories. Find those key elements of this sort of like archetypal things that come through there that are resonant and then just find those people in your world and just tell their story however way you want to and change your media change your model everything else or tell me about lena tell me about you and this is in essence you know full disclosure this is marketing for atreyu in a wonderful and incredible and fantastic way because John and I use your product. We love your product. Yeah. But we're not, we're not here to sell Atreyu. We're here because we met you and we think you're the fucking coolest dude, that we, one of the coolest dudes we've ever met and we just thought having conversations would be great. But what brought us here? Your product. Your, that's you know, what John said. Like it started with product but then you're like, I don't have any resonance with these people. Right. 
I just don't think that they told you a story. Right. You just saw a big titted woman who with blonde hair running around and you're like, that's not me. But <laughs> we did see the picture of, of Todd Williams Todd and Williams. the back of his trunk with an Adidas ad where his butt his white butt is sitting there and he's buck naked with his butt showing and he's trying to pick out it. He's picked out his Adidas shoes like this and it says something like he's half covered in mud. Yeah. And he's like, runners are weird. Runners are different or something yeah. like that. And you immediately that's a story. That's style and image, but it's a story because you know Todd Williams' story. Or anyway, I, I'm going off mm. ad infinitum, but it, it, I do think to me, it's like there are just a few essences, just boil shit down to its essence and figure out how the human species evolved. And generally, you're going to win the marketing game. Yep. And I wish I would just take my own advice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as a coach, maybe there's, maybe there's kind of a, in, and this is again, I'm talking about the visual marketing. Maybe there's sort of a voyeuristic aspect that you could apply because on your YouTube page, one of the cover pictures is of you in the truck and it's early in the morning and it's obviously you're going to a run or whatever, but that's an extension of a picture like that is sort of what I'm thinking of. Also, you'd need to, you can't see product in the picture, but it's like something like that, you know, uh, you know, you find your people throughout the country in the, in the markets that you want to focus on and you do a week with each of those people or something. Or you so, do one and then you come back and you see them four times a year Yeah, and you do your run thing and then you just have four of those people in those five mm -hmm. different markets and you just follow them later and say, what are you excited about? And if they tell you I shifted over to ASICs, tell that story too. Because you, you know what will happen there? Is like, you're in control. I had, a, I had athletes produce, I, I, I've been coaching athletes for Many, 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 many years. We've gone to California International Marathon many, many years. We, we almost, to a person, had bad races. And the weather was good. Look, I've, as a coach, I've got to figure out why it is. But does it mean that my program sucks? <laughs> no. It's a good program. It worked. The same program helped people get huge success in multiple years before in earlier seasons. Something else happened. Like, so you work out what happened there. And guess what happens? That's the story of Telos. That's the story of Steve, the coach. That's the story of each of those athletes as they're playing along. It's just a story. Now, one thing about stories I think is really crucial though, Michael, you need to be thinking about this, is to realize the key element of any story is that part of the essence of being human is change. Now, I'm not talking about transformation because that's a, everybody wants transformation, but nobody wants to change. Right. But we're all changing anyway. So just realize that as long as you're riding, that you don't, try to codify it in such a way that it can't change, that it's, that it is going to change no matter whether you like it or not. So roll with that. Just like on a day when it's, you didn't get your, didn't get up in the morning and it's July and you're going to get out on the trail and it's going to be 105 degrees and you can't do anything about it. So what do you do? You tell the story you're in, whereas opposed to, um, well, let me tell you the story about how I didn't wake up and then it was 105 degrees and so I didn't go run. Nobody wants to hear that story. They want to hear the story of the actual experience that you did, not the story of what you didn't do. Nobody wants to hear that story. So the change element is a thing that works in your favor because people are changing. So I think that is something I would be thinking about as a marketing person with a product that 
is both changing and staying the same, you know, because I do know you have a model in your head that is, there will be changes, but you love your product. I mean, your shoes are good. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see your shoes change. What's the one I wear all the time? The trail one? The base trail. Fucking amazing shoe. One of the best shoes I've ever had on my foot in my whole life. And I'm just telling you, you, you're going to have to change it because that's the way, <laughs> that's the way this market works. Mm-hmm. It's going to change anyway. So just roll with it. Mm-hmm. Just keep rolling with the change. But what's that story going? And in this story for you is, I don't know. I, I'm, I'll, just keep, I'll just keep talking in circles. But I do want to just highlight that piece that stories are change. Change is, you, is ubiquitous. Lean into the change. And then what you find is we find out in all of life, um, present being present, this idea of mindfulness is why all these people are meditating. When I tell you guys last week, I've just realized that meditation's about falling off the cushion, not being on the cushion. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, what's that? Change, like that, that yep. change is where the place, that's where it's at, that presence is where, that present moment is where it's at. And uh, anyway. Oh, I appreciate that. I, there is, nothing but uh reception for 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 all of these ideas um and so what i'm about to say is not necessarily an excuse or anything like that but it is real for me and i started doing what i'm doing like i believe that anybody starts what they do because they want to tell a story. We don't really do anything because we don't want to tell a story. Like everybody does something because they want to tell a story. I even literally made thousands of shoes that said, write a story and then see it true. Write a story, see it true. Like on the side of the shoe. And, and it's, it's, it's so interesting that it's, it's become so far away from good storytelling for whatever reason. And I've been doing a lot of like thinking about like how that happened. Like how, how did we get away from being good storytellers? Like we were in the first year and what exactly was the catalyst for that? And I've, and, and perhaps it's been, if, if I were to personify it, it would be kind of getting punched by reality over and over and over mm-hmm. of saying like, you don't need to tell a story right now. You need to get your shit straight. You need to get, yeah. you get, get your money right. These people have to fucking live. Right. You're paying them. You know, this, this, this shoe needs to be better because the reviews are coming in subpar. Like your shipping times group. are fucked. And it's like yeah. somewhere along the way, it just became so goddamn exhausting yeah. to where I couldn't fathom telling a story. And, and I, I live every moment of the day yapping to Lena as to my desire to learn how to tell great stories again. I I've done, I've done so much great stuff, um, trying to get back to there and kind of coming up short to be totally honest with you. I mean, at one point in time, we had a full time storyteller content person. We didn't produce anything of, of what I would, what I would think fit, fit the bill. And, um, it wasn't, for any particular reason other than I just don't think we were telling the right story. 
I think we were still focused on trying to avoid the punches instead of kind of where we were going. Um, and so I, I'm, I very well received and, and, and I do think I'm getting closer and I, and I, and I think that, that understanding, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about that. And then, and then even understanding, I'm not trying to be like codependent and tie this back or, or, you know, cohesive and tie this back into the original conversation. But my education is very important in understanding the landscape you know, is, is very important on how to tell stories because frankly, I don't want to tell mine. I'd like to tell other people's. I just don't quite know how to, cause I've yeah. always been telling mine. So maybe the, the, this new landscape is the ability to kind of let me understand how I can tell stories, whether it be stories like the rogue story or, or an athlete, you know, an amateur, you know, I guess, I guess you don't even call it that anymore. You just, you know, an athlete story or Jeff's story. Um, it's all, it's all kind of, uh, it's nicely homogenized now. So it seems like both it's extremely confusing in the landscape and probably will, will have quite, quite an, quite an onboarding for this whole new cultural society that we live in, Steve, probably for about five years. I, I would agree with that. I think change comes and then takes at least five seasons, at least three seasons to kind of neutralize and understand what we've created here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then understand that that's going to be very difficult to navigate as difficult as the, you know, navigating how to build a brand on the internet and operating on a medium. That's 90, I think 99 or 95% of all marketing is held through Instagram, which is, you know, meta Facebook, Instagram, Facebook. And then the other is Google and YouTube. So you have two ways to introduce money into marketing and, and what I'm understanding, there's also a third. But like 90, like a massive portion is SEO and clicks and and all this great stuff. And it is what it is. So um, that landscape, just all all that to say that that's been very confusing and it's leveling out. It's becoming a little bit more homogenized and and, and, and neutralized. and, And if you kind of like soup it all up and you say what's most important the story is most important. I think that I'm just going to have to figure out how to tell that the fucking thing again. Yeah. And, and, and you've made a, I think you've been making slight changes in your style Mm -hmm. and that's no one. You don't really want to tell your story in the middle of style change. Yeah. I don't want you to feel like we were beaten up on you because we both are huge champions and and in a lot of ways, it's a much more along the story of saying you, you, you have to wait till you're ready to tell the story, right? But maybe that's what this, what do we say? You woke up this morning, John, feeling a little off and it was a weird day. And yeah. We we are presented with the opportunity, the universe presents us with opportunities that we can, you know, just serendipities happen for whatever they are or however they are. And maybe this conversation just needed to happen this way. We thought it was going to be about collegiate athletes and really what it was about helping Michael find his soul (laughs) or maybe it was or or here's even a better one here's an even better one we realized John wanted to be OJ (laughs) of all the shirts that we can make with with the screen prints we we, good good news is we have an auditory record of everything (laughs) as if we'll go one day we'll do a little reel of John's John's one-liners no you know I when you started you said you know you felt like you were telling 
the story you know you wanted to tell and the way you wanted to tell it. I think it's just sort of organic that all of a sudden when you're confronted with all the numbers and data of business and how overwhelming that is in and of itself, the story's going to get derailed a little bit. So I, you know, don't beat yourself up over that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as you become fam- just a little bit more comfortable with the business part of it, and maybe you don't get any better at it, but you still are more comfortable with it. You have a little, you know, you feel like your feet are on the ground. The story will come back because yeah. that's who you are. Um, you may have to prod the, you know, that those ideas a little bit, but the, the story the company has is just ripe for everybody else's stories. You know what I mean? Because you, you didn't develop a running shoe from the perspective of I am, I'm fixing to be a world record holder. I, you know, you didn't, you didn't grow up with your idols being yeah. these. So no, you, it was you, all from, yeah, so from something else. It, it was, it was another part of, yeah. Of, and so that gives you this broad spectrum in which to cover because it, 99% of the population did not grow up like this guy or like me, like I am going to be the best there ever was. Of course you certainly had legitimate reason to think that, but, <laughs> I never, you know. Um, I think I share your type of DNA, John. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, but no, but I, also, I do know you, what you mean. You also don't come at it from the perspective of trying to make a million dollars. You're not trying to get rich. You want to make a living, and you want to make a living following your passion. Yeah, the, the greatest story that ever has told that yeah. one right there. The, I don't know. Think about think of like maybe three key words that you think about best represents either the company or yourself or whatever, and then try to figure out how to visualize those three words. I know that would be the, I mean, I don't even know how to do that because that's like, yeah, well, this makes me think, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, I'll close my thoughts on, on this is that I've been absolutely obsessed with a piece of data that I uncovered. Um, and I'm challenging this piece of data right now and it's probably very confusing for my team (laughs) so we learned that like most of our athletes are returning athletes we have a very diet like out of every if we get let's just call it 10 orders a day Mm -hmm. at least five of them we know who they are it's massive the average runner gets three shoes a year plus you know it's but they're they're coming They, they they love it and we created a community for him. The other five, and, and, and that was like a really compelling piece of data. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, this is amazing. Uh, we're, we're, building a, we're building a real community. Like I see it as a running club. Like I, I do see it as like, you know, one of the, I do think of, of, I guess I was listening to something about like the 80-20 rule. And 20% of our athletes do you know, provide like 80% of yeah. the brand right. and it's, it's just true. So, and then, and, but if you, I, I the other day I, I took a bit of the forbidden fruit and looked at those five people and what they call this and 
you know, this, maybe you can cut this damn episode, but like you can, because <laughs> I'm about to go off on about 20 seconds on some shit that probably nobody cares about, but it's, it's called a, it's a, just a cohort analysis of attrition. And, and so I was curious if they buy in January out of the new folks, like, do they buy in December? And there weren't a compelling number of them that can pluck into that group. And that really got me down. And, um, but it's natural because like, again, the 80, 20 rule is like, you know, right. 20% of your customers or athletes or crew is going to provide 80% of your revenue. Like that's just the way it is. So nothing is out of balance here, but it really got me thinking about, okay, now that we know that, like what, what do we do? Do we, do we focus on trying to get people to understand who we are or do we take who we are and tell that story and magnify it? So admittingly I've flip flopped either way as to understanding like what's the strategy and kind of like, how do we present this? Like what's our medium? Like who are we talking to and who are we telling the story to? So like, I'm also in the middle of like trying to figure out who we're telling the story to and how we're saying it. But it seems like it's probably a little bit over complicated and I can just kind of reduce it down to the fundamentals of just tell a great story. It doesn't matter where you get it from. Just make sure it's the right one and it's aligned because, because, um, and I, and I say that all again, one of my weird roundabout rambles is, is that I got really obsessed about education, educating people as to why the designs are the way that they are. Um, and I was like, that's the answer to, that's the answer to our growth education. And I believe that. But now it sounds like don't just think about education with beautiful pictures of people and, and, you know, the foot has 7,000 nerve endings on it. And that, you know, what are you going to do about that? Like there's tons of scientific research studies that end in further research is needed, obviously, because of this research was a little fucked. And, and it was like, okay, how do you, I can't even draw a black and white conclusion on footwear and nobody can right now. It's all different. Like, I'm sorry, but it, 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 nobody knows how to use what the companies are marketing because it's not able to be proven and it hasn't been proven yet. There's only how does a different thing affect the person? So it's like, well, okay. So now that we know that, how do we now? Okay. The only caveat is like, there are things that provide extra speed and leverage and all that shit. That's great. But in terms of it being healthy or unhealthy, that's the verdict is, is always out. Um, until it's until somebody wants to give me a conclusion in one of the studies that says this shoe is fundamentally healthier for all runners, like based off of this thing, then, then that, that conversation just can't exist. So what I'm going to be thinking about and what I'm going to leave with is, is this obsession with, with education and also telling a great story if those two things need to be mixed or if I need to reevaluate which one's more important. Because I don't know at this point in time, and I think that's probably the biggest the biggest insights going into the next year. I just had an idea and then promptly forgot it. So it's <laughs> <laughs> a good place. It's a good place. To Did that end. all make a little sense, by the way? Yeah. yeah. Ramble. Okay. You yeah. you always make sense, Michael. The, okay. So education doesn't have to be in the seminar form. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't have to go. Don't forget your mic, John. Oh, right. 
I was like, I know really this, this one goes on for a long yeah, time. And I think that we can talk can, about this. We should have an episode on how to educate what is proper education in the sport that we love so much right now. And what are the, what are the end zones and what are the out of bound lines? Like, what are we talking about here? And, and has that been formalized? And, and is there, is there a path to formalization? And is there a story there to be told? I think that's a, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm really interested in that. If you guys want to break that off, I don't, we probably already have, but I mean, it's, Oh no, we haven't, we, we broke it off. We just, it's, just, yeah. it's a constant thing. And I think, one thing I think that would be helpful is to just kind of think a little bit about the fact that, um, as always, it's good to reduce and it's always good to come back to a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the reason why you're never going to get a result from science that tells you what the right shoe is because they're just designed to reduce. So they can't come back to being whole because that's what science Also, does. being a scientist is is to prove things negative so that you can make a hypothesis as opposed to a mathematician, right. Right. which is to solve proofs. Right. So science is about what's not true, actually. <laughs> it literally <laughs> is. So, so there's so, that. <laughs> How the fuck Damn can it, we you have say another that episode. this is... <laughs> but I do think that the, in my experience, both personal and from what I researched about this topic, I believe it to be true which is the best education starts with a story. Amen. Because you get the way in. I can get down with that, Steve. Yep. <laughs> That's, right, be, there we go. I agree. <laughs> Every time, and when you said it, goosebumps hit me. The first time you said, this is what you need to do, and it's tell a story, because I, I lit up because I was like, you just called it out. It's not as complicated. I don't need to be spending three hours a day researching the whatever the weird acronym is on the medical research board thing that they publish things on the thing. Like right. I, I, I don't need to be spending so much time mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. And you were already know it because you recognize that's how you operated at the beginning. So in essence, you're coming home, yeah. you know, and don't forget anytime anybody comes home, I always want to remind people of the wonderful parable of, um, the prodigal son, uh, everybody, the prodigal son leaves um, while his brother stays at home and does all the work from his dad and his, the younger brother takes all the money and runs out and parties and ends up coming home. And when he comes home, the dad welcomes him and puts his arms around him and says, come on back, jump back in. And the other brother who stayed at home said, what the fuck about me, man? I stayed here the whole time. <laughs> like, why do I don't get the party? Why don't I get that, that thing? That's not what the, the, the parable is about coming home, not beating yourself up. It's just about coming home. Killer. And when you come home and you know it to be home, oh man, is that not like, well, we talked about that idea. Oh, it feels so good. We should do an episode about, like we should do an episode about authenticity. And then we're like, no, not really. We should do an episode about originality, being original. Oh yeah, that would work real well. Well, they're actually the same thing. And this feels like home home for for us, like not giving a care about the time of the episode just kind of talking has always felt really natural for me. So like even this one was fun. Like, yeah. And then take whatever organic level we have here and just funnel it using your creative juices into how you're going to visualize telling the story. Roger that. Just, I mean, cause as organic as it, I mean, Marketing for running shoes has always felt so affected to me. And I, 
and I think I'm only saying that now because I'm not in it and I'm not leafing through every magazine, looking at every ad like I used to, but they all <laughs> seem really like there's just nothing about them that is interesting unless it's an ad that either makes me laugh or like, oh, that's kind of cool. But if it's just about the product itself, it, like Steve mentioned earlier, you just turn that page, right? And that's that's what most of it is. So interesting, because yeah. that's exactly opposite of what will sell shoes right now on an email list of 15 to 50,000. They don't want to read that the engagement rates for long stories yeah. are so low. And the engagement rates yeah. for buy now products with yeah. a beautiful product shot with nothing yeah. on it is so high. Oh, yeah. It's compellingly like like sad. <laughs> but well, it's not saying that it's sad because the person is flawed. It's just sad because like we need to we obviously need to be telling better, better things. We need to we need to find more meaning in how we purchase you, i think you can tell a story with a single frame picture mm -hmm. with no copy whatsoever if if you do it if you do it right hell yeah I, you don't need anything else i mean somewhere you'd have to put a tray so people aren't like is this a camping ad what are we looking at you know what i mean but visually and i i think I think you. I think you could do a hundred pictures yeah. in the space of a weekend. That would be. You're basically great. summing up the uh, the old the Steve Jobs' Apple ad, where it was just like, you know, let's just put pictures of people who did cool shit. <laughs> let's just put an Apple logo on it, just to let them know what we stand for, because we stand for you know people who went against the status quo. It's like, ah, oh, that's badass. You, you know, know, we we. At Rogue, we had um, a whole media campaign that we did around um, X was a rogue. We had Pre was a rogue. We had right. um, Ian Richards is a rogue. Yeah. And we, we knew we were running into some likeness issues. That's right. awesome. might, might not be. But we were yeah. rogue, and we were small. We didn't really care. Cease and, my dad was a lawyer. He's like, cease and desist, let her come. Cease and desist. Until then, carry on, young man. Like, <laughs> but, I need to talk I need to talk to you about my legal, yeah. legal paradigm. But I do think there's one other story, and you may have told this story before, but just to, maybe we can end on this note. But sure. there's this story that I want to hear mm -hmm. about the bee. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe you've told it and maybe it's the whole brand is a storytelling brand. And I say it, it's actually a wasp and it was about, yeah. it's like, you know, it's they, they're, I, I even, I, at one point in time, I even attempted to reframe it in Tibetan book of living and dying. And I reframed it and I was like the story of the wasp. And it was, it was basically a story. Wasp represents, you know, economy, springtime, teamwork, and if you fuck with it, like you're gonna get messed up. Yeah. So it's it's a really cool cool image image for me. Um, but you came to it at um, a passionate ten day meditation. Yeah, yeah, under a tree, sitting under a huge wasp nest because I just hated wasps. And so I just think think <laughs> about like, that. Just think yeah. about that. Just think about that story. Yeah. And then that story, that wasp is a storytelling vehicle for you forever. Like the wasp, just that wasp is now an archetype. But once you, this is the beauty about it, man. Storytelling is so cool. Because once you own it, you're tapped into an archetype 
the den wants you to be creative with it. It wants you to make patterns in chaos. It wants you to take chaos and turn it into a pattern because that's what nature wants to have happen. And so every wasp story, every story could be a wasp story. Now you have to stretch mm-hmm. and press and figure your way out and do something that's really original and authentic, coming back mm-hmm. to those two words. But I do think there's a lot there. And what power is there? Like storytelling isn't just some dude or some girl's story. It's the long-term narrative structure that will always have Michael as a key component of it. And I will tell you this for sure, both as a entrepreneur in a shoe brand, in a a running store brand and a coaching brand, everyone wanted me to market my image. I didn't want to do it. And I just kept thinking about it from the ego perspective of that's not who I am. So what about being Steve is not Steve? So I'll push that back to you. Since Michael is the creator of Atreyu, what part of Atreyu is not Michael? It will always be, it always has to be. And now all the new people that have come in are part of that story too. For example, John is a part of the rogue story. He'll always be a part of the rogue story. I'm not a rogue anymore. John's not a rogue anymore. Rogue continues to go on its thing, but it now has benefited so greatly from those two stories. And we didn't, at Rogue, we didn't tell him appropriately. And as a coach now in my own business, because I'm trying to run my business now, I'm realizing I'm still so scared to tell my story. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing boring about my story. No, there may no. be boring portions of it, or I may not tell it particularly well, but guess what happens when you start telling stories and you start getting better at it. And then you get better at it and it starts resonating with people. And then the next thing you know, it's just, it's just there. Like that, one, 101 or 105 episodes of the Running Rogue podcast that I was on. I was just in CIM and I had two people out of the blue hear my voice. Were you a voice of Running Rogue? <laughs> I left that podcast in 2019, 18, something like 19. And like they recognized my voice. Like, so you don't have any idea. And, and as a person who had a variety of different roles in life that, um, of recognition at various levels, still very low key, but still recognized. Um, I do know this for sure. You have no idea how your story is going to impact people. And um, if you don't cultivate it, it's chaos. Mm. If you don't find pattern, it's chaos. But that's not nature. When we talk about science being a reduction, or we're looking at nature, reducing, 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 right? To get the pattern. But <laughs> just look outside and every tree has a pattern. Mm-hmm. You don't look at a tree and go, that was not a tree. I mean, sometimes we confuse a bush and a tree. <laughs> yeah. but, but every tree is a tree. There's right. a pattern. So I don't know. That's, the, that's the, the, the one thing I do think that is critical is not being afraid of telling your story because that's already baked into the model of reality, baked into the model at least of nature. And um, evolve or die, motherfucker. Evolve or die. Maybe that could be the pot topic. How yeah. this, we started with we started with college athletics and we moved to evolve or die. <laughs> it always goes existential, one. man. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing your um your your episode recap. <laughs> Good luck. Motherfucker. 